0: Hello, everybody. This is Sean Harwell. You are listening to the Never Heard of It podcast. This is episode forty-two. Jackie Robinson, and I'm jo- I'm joined today. Was he? 40? He was forty-two, right? So I think three. so. Okay, good enough. I'm joined today by the man that just talked to you, and his name is
1: number forty-three. Craig
0: Moorhead. Craig, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Sean. I don't follow sports, really, mm-hmm. so I think you're right, but my confirmation on that is not necessarily the best. I'm just going to go ahead and
0: say that. Nope, I'm going to take it as 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 gospel.
1: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. That's up to you. How are you doing, Sean?
0: I'm doing quite well. I'm excited today. We have a special guest with us to talk about another movie that had kind of fallen through our cracks. And... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say he's an expert on this movie. I feel qualified in saying that. We'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I have to tell you all things. same things I always tell you. Come find us online, neverheardpodcast.com. You can check out all our episodes. We do many episodes every other week where we talk about news. And today we're going to focus on one movie specifically. And we're always happy to have you and happy to hear from you. So come say hello. Say hello, Craig.
1: Oh, hello. Jesus. Okay. I know, I know. It's hard. It's like pulling teeth of me. (laughs) Well, let's
0: pull some more. Without further ado, let's say hello to our very special guest. We have once again, joining us for the second time from the excellent Podcasting Them Softly podcast, co-host Nick Clement. Nick, how are you this fine evening?
2: I am doing great. Thank you guys very much for uh, having me on the show. Can't wait to talk about all the different stuff.
0: Well, we can't either, so much so that we are now trying this for the second time, (laughs) because it didn't work the first time. So thank you for being patient with us, and we are super excited to get into it. Today we are going to talk about Tony Scott's 1990 revenge movie. Called Revenge, actually. That's mm-hmm. the, the worst setup for that movie ever. Uh, and it's it's starring Kevin Costner, but we have a lot to talk about before we get to that. If you want to know some of Nick's background on how he got into movies and how he got into to being such the fanatic that he is and why he is probably our best source at this point of of episode ideas, go check out our episode where we talked to him and Frank Mangiorelli about for ours Fear City. you'll enjoy that one very much. We were talking before about how we recorded that episode and had such a good time and then we're chatting after recording it, and I found out all this amazing stuff that I wanted to ask you about. So we're going to get into that right now, and the the key of that is you dropped this bombshell on me that you interned for Jerry Bruckheimer at some point in your life, Nick, and I immediately could not imagine what the hell that was like. So... (laughs) You got to tell us, tell us how you got there. I'm dying to know.
2: Well, I mean, it was certainly, certainly a dream come true, um, especially, especially for someone, uh, with no industry connections from Connecticut and being a huge, you know, movie buff, you know, forever. And, and in particular being a big fan of, you know, the old school Jerry Car movies, Top Gun, Crimson Tide, Beverly Hills Cop, you know, Enemy of the State, all that kind of stuff. So, Basically, um, I went to school in New Hampshire. I went to school at uh, Keene State College. Uh, that's where I went to college. After my freshman year, my father put it in my head uh, that the only way that anyone was going to listen to me is if I, you know, never stopped being a pest. Uh, (laughs) It's good advice, dad. Good advice. (laughs) Yeah. And this is, you know, this is back in 1999. So this is when people were still writing letters and still communicating that way. I don't know if anybody writes letters anymore, but I basically uh, FedExed a letter a week for six months and my first six months of my, that's basically my first semester of sophomore year. I FedExed a letter to Jerry Bruckheimer basically asking him for a job, an internship, you know, please get my foot in the door. And every week I wrote him a letter (laughs) and basically just told him about what I was doing in New Hampshire and what I thought of the box office and what I thought of whatever movie it was that I saw. And I think I even pitched him some movie ideas in his letters. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) uh, You know, I just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And I never heard anything. And uh, one day I went to the, uh, you know, get my mail, and uh, you know, I looked inside the little window, and I could see that lightning bolt logo, you know, it was on the, yeah. on the envelope, and it was sitting right there, and I was like, oh, you know, geez, what, what's this? This is either, this is either, you know, we're sending the FBI to your dorm, to- <laughs> <laughs> They finally rejected <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, um, lucky, luckily enough, um, I got a letter from a woman, Christiane Reed, uh, at the time Christiane Grollinger. And, uh, you know, it was basically, uh, you know, Jerry's gotten all your letters. You can stop writing him uh, right now. It's totally <laughs> fine. He gets it. And, uh, you know, why don't you come on out here for an internship? And, <clears throat> you know, that, that just basically changed my life. And it was just completely mind-blowing. So I went out to uh, California for my junior year. I supposedly went to class, but that's very debatable. We could have a whole separate podcast about that.
0: (laughs) And we will. And we will.
2: (laughs) But um, I did the national exchange program. Uh, So I went over to Cal State Northridge and I did, uh, I would say, very minimal uh, schooling. (laughs) Uh, But uh, Three days a week, I was over at uh, Bruckheimer's shop in Santa Monica, picking up coffee and, you know, doing the errands and the grocery shopping and the script copying and driving out to writer's houses and going to every agency and picking up cookies and milk and all the really fun stuff that, (laughs) you know, the interns get to do. And uh, honestly, I, you know, it was just, it was, it was obscene. I mean, I, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before, obviously in my entire life and, you know, young, I mean, I was 19. Um, It was something that I don't think that I truly... Uh, understood at the time. I look back on it now, and I say to myself, wow, you had uh, the keys to Jerry Bruckheimer's office on on your key ring, and I just laugh about that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I I went out there and, you know, did all that stuff, and this is when they were doing stuff like Kangaroo Jack and Remember the Titans and (laughs) Pearl Harbor and uh, Black Hawk Down, and they were doing, uh, uh, they were just getting into the prep on Bad Boys 2 and Pirates of the Caribbean. Just so happened, of course, you know, Tony Scott made... Five, six movies of Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, one day I was doing a, a run for one of the uh, assistants and she said uh, to me, She goes, Aren't you a big Tony Scott fan? I think I've heard you talk about him. I was like, Yeah, of course. She goes, You know, I could probably get you an internship with him if you want. And <laughs> I was like, You pooped. I don't have to write anybody letters. Really? No. <laughs> so um, she picks up the phone. I can still remember it. She picked up the phone. She called Totem, T- Tony Scott's office. He spoke to Tom Moran, his assistant. I got this guy Nick over here. He's going to be finishing his internship up here in a couple months, and you know he's going to be out here for another one. You know, could you guys use somebody? And you know, within 38 seconds, I had an internship with Tony Scott. Yeah. So well, I went, you know, so I went for my fall and winter semester from Jerry. Then I went over for the spring and the early summer. Tony and had a chance to work with him. He had just finished shooting Spy Game, um, so he had just come back to L.A. He was basically um, cutting spy game. I used to hang out with him and Christian Wagner, the editor, and watch them put together little snippets from that film. It was totally insane to see that happening, and wow. he, was prepping, he was prepping Domino and Man on Fire. So you had Richard Kelly and Brian Helgeland coming in to do all the meetings and all the script stuff, and you know it was um, it's complete movie madness, you know, especially for somebody who a couple of years was going that, to school. Yeah, I was going to school and I <laughs> in high school watching Top Gun on a loop. So it made all the rest of my jobs in L.A. very hard to live up to those first few. Sure. Yeah, no.
0: Let's. Uh, we need to back up just a little bit because there's a lot going on there. <laughs> I have so many questions. Like, what kind of cookies does Jerry Bruckheimer like? Mm-hmm how many people were like oh you did like the Shawshank thing you're the guy that like sent all <laughs> so did every everybody knew you're the guy that sent all the letters did, did you have that reputation when you got there
2: well it was funny when I got there my very first time that I was there I went out to meet everybody the very first time I went out there my dad me and my buddy we went out to LA we were we were there to look at Cal State and to figure out all the school stuff and when I got to Bruckheimer's office my first meeting um, they had all the letters in a huge um, <laughs> uh, hanging folder, like a hanging That's file amazing.
3: folder. That's amazing. So That's awesome.
2: Will, yeah. I can remember her putting them on the uh, Ann putting them on the table, saying, "Here are the letters that Jerry read." <laughs> and I, can, I can still remember saying. Oh my God! There's a file inside of an office at Jerry Bruckheimer Films that says Nick Clement, and they have <laughs> <That's> all hilarious, <laughs> hilarious. So, um, so yeah, so it was it was known that I was the letter guy, yeah, at the very beginning. But
0: and so, what was that first meeting with with Jerry himself like for you? And when did that happen in that process? I mean, that same sort of
2: I was, was introduced a week or so. To, I was introduced to Jerry on the second day of being there. Honestly, at the time, you know, what's it like meeting God? I mean, you know, I'm not <laughs> yeah. a religious, per- I'm not a religious person, but this is, you know, this is Jerry Bruckheimer. I mean, like right. you say what you want about uh, certain commercial, you know, aspects to some of the movies that he's made. <clears throat> I think Jerry Bruckheimer is one of the greatest showmen that the movie industry has ever seen. It's incredible the legacy yeah. that he's put on Hollywood and the legacy that will remain on Hollywood because of his work. <clears throat> when I met Jerry and he, you know, shook my hand and said, you know, welcome. It was like, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty much one of the greatest feelings i ever had in my life. That's um,
3: awesome.
2: And to make it even better, he was cool and he was nice. And you wouldn't even really know if he was in the office. He was super quiet. <clears throat> Never made a big deal about stuff, except for when he was watching trailers to Pearl Harbor in his office. That the sound blasted way up, <laughs> <laughs> he'd be flipping out about the trailer. And but it, it was just—it's—it's it's hard to describe. When um, I can remember when they were casting Black Hawk Down, and yep. the line out the door of that office of every single young actor in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I can still remember it to like you know like little things they just pop into my head and I just say wow that was like what it was like working for you know Jerry Bruckheimer like the day that I saw Ridley Scott Jerry Bruckheimer and Joe Roth walking around the compound in Santa Monica smoking cigars and talking about how awesome they were and how great Black Hawk Down was <laughs> 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 I mean, you know and like I remember one day they brought in like Steven Zalian, Steve Gagan Aaron Sorkin they brought in like Everybody, right, to do a Black Hawk Down script thing because they were all, and I just remember, and I'm like, and I'm like, that's a room, yeah, and I'm just watching these people walk in, like, what the fuck, you know, this is crazy. So, you know, it's just, it it really was mind blowing. Um, It it really was, and uh, it was a dream come true to, to do all that kind of stuff. And it didn't matter to me that I was just copying scripts and you know picking up dry cleaning and taking Tony Scott's dogs to the vet and you know know, it was really something else and um, you know when I was there they were they were shooting Kangaroo Jack and you know that was I know you guys get a kick out of that whole thing and you know that was just (laughs) that was nuts to be in the office when that movie was being made and you know yeah I was gonna
0: ask because like yeah you talked about there was like a list of movies that you mentioned at the time there would be you know Pearl Harbor Black Hawk Down Enemy of the State a couple of these things kangaroo jack does not fit in any there's no world where those that one as far as my eyes see that kangaroo jack fits in with that I mean what do you have any sort of insight as? and look I, I know it did well right like it was number one that weekend I remember specifically right
2: yeah, it 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 was number 1. I want to say that it did like 24, 25 million and I think it yeah I think no pun intended, I think it legged its way to like 75 million domestic. Ah,
0: nicely um, done
2: sir. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> this is what I'll respectfully say about Kangaroo Jack. What I can remember about the situation was that and again, I was not in Australia. I was not there on set. I was simply in the office overhearing things and, you know, everything else. Um it, it, it did not, as I recall, it did not go the way that they all thought it was going to go uh, for, a, for a variety <laughs> for a variety of reasons, not the least Look, of which is it's that... a talking a,
0: kangaroo movie, yeah.
2: Well, and that was the thing. See, have you seen the... Have you guys seen the film?
0: No, I have not. I've only seen it
2: on TV in pieces. Okay. Yeah. It is not a talking it's kangaroo movie. Right. Right. Okay. They cut a trailer where the dream sequence, where the one and only time that the kangaroo speaks, they cut a trailer with that scene you know cut up throughout to make it almost appear as if it was a talking kangaroo, because snow dogs had come out mm-hmm. and, you know had made some bucks because it was talking dogs, okay <laughs> this, this, movie, this movie was from what I recall this was you guys know the name Steve Bing I don't the entrepreneur producer if you look him up he owned that company Shangri-La Entertainment that is a bell. yeah back in like the early 2000s you'd see it associated with numerous movies as I recall the idea of the movie originated with that guy I want to say Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel did work on it but I could be wrong on that okay wow it was not written as a kids movie this was this was written as an edgy PG13 mild R way back if you watch the film now there are so many questionable elements that remain like <laughs> just like it's PG first off people are yeah. shot people are shot or stabbed there's like a mild sex scene it, it's, <laughs> not, it, it's not like it, it's just It's one of the most unique movies probably ever made in terms of what was probably originally conceived to what the final product became. Right. They had built a huge animatronic kangaroo, and they spent bucks on it because it's it's Bruckheimer, right? Sure. And it broke down. It got sand in it in the desert. It wouldn't work right. So they completely scratched the thing, and that was one of the first times that you had a fully... CGI talking creature that was done in a photoreal way. That movie, if you go yeah. back to it, it's, it still looks pretty good because they fucking spent they spent a ton of money because it's Bruckheimer.
0: I wonder if they had like that Jaws conversation where they're like, you know, those shark broke down on Jaws for Spielberg, and they just kind of shot around it and it actually made the movie better.
2: <laughs> this is them shooting footage that then had to be completely reshot because all. Oh of man. Spent- Yeah, it was interesting. I got to know Jerry Jerry O'Connell pretty well during the production. He was in the office a lot, and he was very nice and was always uh, very uh, very talkative. Very nice guy. Good, good. (laughs) And um, you know, it was just a lot of it was just really crazy. But I can remember going to the premiere for that movie, and it was one of the most surreal experiences ever. Like, Mm -hmm. because I went to a bunch of premieres for them. I went to the Remember the Titans. That was insane. Veronica Guerin. That was really cool. Uh, that's actually one of Bruckheimer's best movies. If you guys ever seen Veronica Guerin with Kate Blanchett,
0: yeah, I think I did. I didn't know that was Bruckheimer.
2: Yeah, neither did I. Yeah, very good film. Joel Schumacher directed that. One of his better films. Another very nice guy who I had a, had the chance to meet a bunch of times. Big fan of him. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just a, it was a crazy time, and you know, not everybody gets to do that, and I feel very fortunate.
0: Well, here's another question for you from that era, specifically. Did you, by chance, ever go to any of the test screenings for Remember the Titans? Because I saw one. I was at one in Pasadena um, when that movie was being tested, and uh, it played like Gangbusters. I think the audience ate it up.
2: Yeah, no, that was a huge hit. I mean, that yeah. did like I think that did an unexpected like 120 million domestic or something. No, I didn't actually go to a test screening. I did go to the premiere at the Rose Bowl where they had like wow. Unnecessary- Unnecessarily because it was Bruckheimer, there was like Black Hawk helicopters flying a <laughs> jet. Like, like, you know, I was like, okay, that's cool. It's Bruckheimer. We'll deal with it. But sure. yeah, that was insane. There was like, you know, 50,000 people there, and they had the movie out on like four massive, uh, you know, jumbotrons out on the football field. The most intense stuff, though, I probably had a- the experiences was with Tony because um, that was very personal. Um, I didn't deal with Jerry on a direct day to day basis every day. Um, the Tony Scott thing was was very personal. That was a lot of, you know him handing things off to me, getting him his lunch all the time, you know, helping his wife out, going to his house all the time. So you that, were like
0: a personal assistant is more than a
2: more or less like an
0: office intern. Yeah, I, mean, it I, I, did,
2: like. I did some stuff in the office, but I got to know them pretty well um, and and was asked to do some stuff. Actually, this is a funny. This is a good one. I'll tell you guys this one. I had the chance to repossess a car okay. without, being, <laughs> without being a repo man. I I was tasked with picking up an automobile for the Scott family from an ex-employee. And uh, that was exciting. I was taken by courier. Like, instead of, like, the courier picking up the script, he picked up Nick Clement. Okay, yeah. So
3: the
2: the courier comes by and picks me up and drives me out to uh, Venice. And uh, I was told where to go, and I was given an envelope with some money in it, and it was, like, a final payoff. And then I was driving back with Tony Scott's car. And I'm, like, driving back, and I'm, like, what the hell? world
0: (laughs) okay okay what kind of car was it
2: Uh, that was actually that was a jeep grand cherokee that had been purchased for uh, an employee that was no longer working for them so I can recall that that was fun and then the other other good car story was when I left the Bruckheimer office with Bruckheimer's assistant at the time and we were in the Humvee and he sure and um he then drove the humvee as i recall we drove the humvee to get serviced and then when we got to the humvee location we picked up i think it was a Porsche it was some yeah it was something that assistant drove very fast up and down sunset i i was like okay all right this is why you're gray <laughs> number one assistant and i'm not <laughs>
0: wait so did you drive the humvee no okay okay i thought maybe they were in the Porsche and you had to also bring the humvee which <laughs> would have been terrifying too <laughs> you
2: no know, for some reason i was just required to go with this guy i don't really know why i was there but i Probably
0: just because of how fast he drove yeah
2: you're supposed to make sure he slows down <laughs> i just did what they told me to do i have to be honest with you so of course
0: well on that yeah on that front i mean is there a swimming with the sharks you know story or is there anything you know without throwing anybody under the no, bus you want
2: to, honestly, michael bay even held the door for me i mean honestly oh my honestly, god you guys yeah. like i'm not kidding like when I was at Bruckheimer Films, there was no yelling. <laughs> there was no screaming. They didn't have to.
3: Right.
2: You know, there was just... No. Like, I never, ever, ever, ever... I mean, I got annoyed. There were some times at 6.30 on a Friday that I didn't feel like driving to D.D. Reese to go pick up chocolate chip cookies, but... So, no. I never, ever had a Swimming with Sharks moment, and I'd watched that movie 50 times before I went out to L.A., so I, I had a feeling of knowing what to expect, and no, I never...
1: So here's my question. So all of that sounds amazing. And honestly, I could sit here and listen to hours of anecdotes. And and really, I'd be glad to. But then, so, but the, so the question in my mind is, when did you decide it was the end of the road out there?
2: Basically, what I realized was this. I wasn't necessarily ready to sacrifice my entire life to making movies Mm -hmm. what I saw very quickly and and I got a chance to work you know I worked on Seabiscuit you know I worked at some agencies I did some television work um you know at a production company I had a chance to see the business on a lot of different ends Mm -hmm. uh the business and the creative side and after eight years I you know I basically just said to myself yeah I'm not really anxious to work a 15, 16 hour day, the way really? they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm just, and I just, and I, and I, you know, I, I don't know how long it is that I want to live in an apartment when I would really like to buy a house and sure. I don't have a million dollars in the bank and all my family uh-huh. lives in the East Coast and my wife and I are both from the East Coast. You know, we're high school sweethearts. I dragged her out to LA for a year and then made her come all the way back when we decided we wanted to get married. And I really realized that it was just not... It's a really stupid, lazy thing to say, but I'll be honest, I'm not going to lie. I don't know if I could have done that amount of reading. I hear you. The amount of reading that those executives did, the stacks of scripts, I just wouldn't have been able to get through them. <laughs> and, and there's a side of me that doesn't want to have the magic of movies ruined. Sure. Like, I love watching movies too much to know how every movie is going to end and how every single little thing is done. I love watching behind the scenes featurettes on Blu rays. I love listening to directors' commentaries. But I just basically said, yeah, you know what? I'd much rather just watch films and talk about them endlessly, you know? Yeah. So that's sort of really where I made the decision just to kind of like refocus my life and take a new step and see what happens. And, 17 years later, you know, I'm I'm doing the, you know, the podcast with Frank and uh, writing for Variety on a freelance basis at the moment, which has been another dream come true. Incredible.
0: Yeah, I'd say let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, how did that come to be, you know, and we'll post some links Stuff I, I read, you know, you did what, like three or four articles just on Brett Ratner uh, yeah. alone recently. And there's, those were all yeah. really, really fascinating and interesting and uh, learned a lot yeah. about his, his company. Mm-hmm. and I just, just watched the author uh, JT Leroy story on Amazon which they, they were behind uh, yeah. on the documentary side and so it was a different kind of facet there and I've read some of your other stuff yeah how how did you get your foot in the door in that field because it, you know yeah. it's, to, it's totally different um, you know I don't know if those, those same contacts work you know or if you can just send a letter to Variety FedEx every day for six months and say hire me as a writer
2: <laughs> the variety thing is is just one of those lovely things that happened because of the internet i was chatting with one of the senior vice presidents at variety on the message on the comments section of another website we were talking about the movie wow. the counselor you know ridley scott's movie the counselor which, yeah, uh, yep, did you guys yep. see that
0: i did yes i have
2: not seen that yet oh boy Craig, (laughs) that that movie's calling out your name.
0: Yeah. We won't, we won't won't get into that one here because that's, that's there, there could be some, that's for the Ridley Scott episode. Yes. But yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that later. I'm a huge fan of the counselor. Like that movie to me is like gold. Um, But regardless of that, I was on a website, dropping some comments about the counselor. And then this guy liked my comment and one thing led to another and I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, wait a minute, this this guy's a this guy's at variety. This thing, you know? And it just we just talked and blossomed and then I I called him at Variety. Uh-huh. The guy. <laughs> and I just said, hey man, listen, I'm I'm just pumped at, that you're a big fan of the counselor. You know, I and we just talked for like twenty minutes and a year went by, and out of nowhere, they're interested in having me write. And I have to assume that it, you know a lot of it probably has something to do with the podcast and you know doing the interviews and yeah. you know posting reviews every day. But um, but yeah, I I was given the opportunity to write an article with them, and then one thing led to another, and I've written close to a dozen. So um, I'm uh, I'm thankful and fortunate, and and just happy to be doing it. So. That's I'm incredible. really
0: starting to get the picture that yeah, your dad's advice was probably the best thing that ever happened to you yeah. <laughs> about being a persistent pest. That's crazy. Yeah,
2: definitely, definitely. And um, and and now you know I'm I'm you know one of the one of the big things I'm working on right now, and I know we're going to get into talking about. No, revenge. let's do
0: it. Yeah, tell us right now because yeah, let's do it.
2: Oh yeah, and um, I'm I'm putting together a book on Tony Scott, which has been yeah, um, you know uh, another sort of dream come true thing to get involved with. The interviews that I've been doing with his old collaborators have been basically just nothing short of amazing I mean the the people that I've spoken to um, they revered him and they just had so many great everybody just has so many great loving passionate things to say about him as an artist and as a human being so you know the fact that his movies mean so much to me and I think that Granted, his name probably isn't as well known out there as you know the Spielbergs and the Coppolas and the you know all those guys, of course.
0: Or even his brother, yeah, Ridley.
2: Or his brother, um, people don't realize is how many really, really entertaining, watchable movies that Tony Scott made. And when, when you look at all the films on paper, you say you end up saying to yourself, oh, "I love that movie. Oh, I mm-hmm. love that movie. Oh, that was a great movie that year. Oh, that was a really fun movie. I really enjoyed that." And that was the, that's the thing that you know, my book is going to sort of talk about is that every time that you sat down to watch a film by Tony Scott, he gave you the Tony Scott experience, whatever that was going to be for two hours. And, you know, I think that his style, which, you know, changed and morphed and evolved throughout 30 years of filmmaking. um, It's absolutely mind blowing to, to look at and to compare and to study. So I'm, I'm very excited about putting the putting the book together and, you know, I've gotten some interest from, uh, you know, a, a certain publisher, which you know, I won't say anything right now, and it's just very early. But I'm excited that somebody out there, you know, feels that it is, you know, worthy and possibility of happening. So I'm going to continue doing what it is I'm doing, and we're going to get it out there for everybody to read.
1: I feel like, yeah, I feel like Tony Scott doesn't really get his due, and uh, just the fact that there would there would be a deep, you know, sort of history on his work and everything. I can't wait to read that.
2: When he died, everybody came out, You know, not everybody, but people started coming in out of the woodwork like, oh, he was great. Oh, he made all these great movies. Well, yeah, where were you when you gave it a <laughs> shitty review yeah. 15 uh-huh. years ago? Um, yeah. you, know, I, you know, I can count. I know the critics that stood by Tony Scott. I mean, like, I know them. I know who they are. Like, there's very few <clears throat> that were consistently conscious of the efforts that he made in yeah. commercial pop filmmaking, um, you know Manohar Dargis, for instance, you know writes for the New York Times. Right. Um, she's one of my favorite critics. I think that she's incredibly astute. I love reading her work, and she is a huge champion of Tony Scott's work, and in particular, uh, Domino, which I think is his best film. I think it's just the most misunderstood movie of the last yeah. twenty years.
0: Well, I still need to see it. I do recall listening to your episode with Frank talking about that movie and enjoyed it a ton, and it did make me more excited to see it than than any of the trailers had. But Mm -hmm. um, I I think the movie that we're going to talk about now, which is Revenge from 1990, Mm. is... It's another one of those that is, uh, yeah, I mean, like, look, it's what's sandwiched after Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and before Crimson Tide and True Romance. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this is about as left of a turn as as I would Mm -hmm. imagine somebody could take after Mm -hmm. making that kind of stuff. And so I definitely want to get into that. Let me just give a quick little rundown. If you haven't seen this movie, and I'm going to talk to Craig specifically about not having seen it, but... Again, this is 1990, directed by Tony Scott, uh, based on the novel by Jim Harrison. Stars Kevin Costner, Anthony Quinn, Madeline Stowe, John Leguizamo's in there. Um, Help me out, the guy from Major League with the the amazing voice, uh, Gammon. Is that James Gammon? What's his name? James Gammon. James Gammon. Love that guy. Um, Miguel Ferrer. Miguel Ferrer, yeah, the great Miguel Ferrer. And uh, this is a movie about... What I love about this movie, specifically, is that it opens with like an F-16, like, you know, this is a movie about a pilot who's retiring from the Air Force, or Navy, excuse me, and it it almost starts like as if you're going to get Top Gun, and then, oh, by the way, there's a dead body in the desert, or what appears to be a dead body, and it starts moving, Kevin Costner is that pilot, he's retiring, what he's going to do after his retirement, he's going to go down to Mexico and hang out with a friend, and he's got a cabin down there, Uh, While he's there, his friend Anthony Quinn has an amazingly beautiful wife by Madeline Stowe, and the next thing you know, Cosner is kind of head over heels for her. They have this very intense, illicit affair, and Quinn finds out and comes after them. He he inflicts some damage, for sure, and Mm. takes Madeline Stowe and puts her in a whorehouse to be a prostitute for the rest of her life and leaves Cosner basically for dead. Cosner, of course, does not die, and he goes after them. Thus, the revenge. That's it in a nutshell. Craig, mm. I'm sure you had heard about this movie. I saw it five, six, seven years ago. I hadn't, you know, somebody had to recommend it to me. I didn't know about this movie until then. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first time you had seen it, correct?
1: This first time, yes.
0: All right. So before we talk to the expert here, I would like to know just, yeah, what was your general, general thoughts on this? Did you anticipate it being quite this dark?
1: No, not at all. I, I, um, yeah, it, it, it's you're right. It, it's it's such a left turn. So, you know, the the two movies before this Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2 huge summer movies made just tons of money. Yeah, and and so I, honestly, I didn't even really know, I mean, I I guess I knew that Tony Scott directed this, but it's 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 one of those titles that just kind of slips out of your head and you don't think about it until you see it in a list of his movies mm-hmm. and you realize, "Oh yeah, that's that's one of those I haven't seen." You got Kevin Costner as the main character here. Couldn't be more of a dick. Couldn't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, not not even not even like trying to set him up as like a real hero. Nope. I don't know. It's 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 a testament to to Tony Scott's ballsiness. I mean, it's something that he really chased after. That I think he he finally ended up with after. Uh, boy, I can't remember who who they said the first sort of crew that was in there.
0: Uh, I think John Houston was gonna. John Houston, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, how do I feel about it? It's a hell of a thing to watch. Yeah. (laughs) Not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I think we should also note, well, I'm sure we'll get into it. There are definitely, there are two versions of it. I believe I watched the director's cut as Sean, I believe you did too. And the theatrical cut is a whole different kettle of fish, apparently.
0: Yeah, not only that, this is one of the rare director's cuts that's shorter by a substantial margin. I by believe substantial. Um, yeah. And what? Yeah, I think what you're left with, and I haven't seen the theatrical to compare it, but Nick, I know you have, and and I think you prefer that version. You told me. But what you're left with is a pretty lean, pretty mean movie here. A lot of uh, very intense sex in it, and again, we're gonna spoil that the crap out of this movie because we got to talk about the ending. Yeah, Nick. Tell me again how you can find the theatrical cut because I think that one is not quite as readily available. Correct?
2: The theatrical cut you can purchase on DVD. Um, There's an American old DVD release. The 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 version. There actually there were two DVD releases. Let me back up. Uh One of the DVD releases was released non-anamorphic, and one was. So, what is out there? To be able to be found at this point, I'm not 100% sure. If you were to right. buy it on Amazon right now, I don't know what they would ship you for the DVD. If it would be in anamorphic full widescreen, there is a German Blu-ray that has the theatrical cut in full 2.35 widescreen anamorphic. looks absolutely gorgeous, and there are just there are substantial differences between the two movies. I do prefer the the, the first cut for a variety of reasons. Sean, you made a good point that the director's cut feels extremely lean and mean. And I think that that was a a reflection of Tony Scott's heightened and accelerated sense of style towards the later part of his career, because he put this director's cut together, I believe, in 2005, 2006, 2007 around that right. time. Right,
0: what I read was it was after the original producer, yeah. I think, died, correct? Yeah, like, you know yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, he, and, I, and I, I think, from what I read, it sounds like some of the stuff that, you know, Tony, I think, was, I don't want to say forced, but strongly encouraged to include in the theatrical version, they're, they're softening the blows a little bit, perhaps. Um, Is that it's, right or no? I mean, that's kind of the way it sounded like, you know,
2: Yes, no. was- <laughs> I have to be honest with you. There's there is some dark shit, and I don't want to spoil everything for people. But there's some dark shit in the theatrical cut that he took out for the director's cut. Oh wow! He 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 amped up the sex even more. There was some stuff in the director's cut that's new, and I believe that most of the new stuff is sexual footage that had been left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he removed a fair amount of the. Character shading between the relationship between Kevin Costner and Anthony Quinn. See, for me, it works like this: revenge is more connected to his first movie, *The Hunger*. It is uh, a more, yeah. it is a more patient, it is a more uh, visually studied film. Mm-hmm. It's more deliberate on a in a directorial, in a craftsmanship angle, and it has obviously less to do with the popcorn sensibilities of Top Gun and uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two, and it has more in you know in common with the artsier sensibility that he brought to his first movie, The Hunger, which of course flopped and you know put him in director's jail for a little while. Right. Mm-hmm. you know, as you said, he couldn't help himself with the opening, put the jet in there, ha ha, little wink to Top Gun. Yeah. This, this is not that type of a movie. And it's no. it, <laughs> you know, and it and it represents the kind of move that a filmmaker would likely make after they've had two gargantuan box office hits, and you don't want—you know—you're you're, you're going to use the clout that you have at the time to get a film that you might not ever have a chance to get made in well, any other circumstance. I wanted to ask about that if you right? knew
0: anything about, like, yeah, what is it? Just like coming off the heels of those two things, it was like, this is what I'm doing next. Do you know?
2: Yeah, the film had been in development for a while, as you said. John Huston, Walter Hill was also attached to it at one point. There were a mm-hmm. couple of different casting calls that were made. I actually just did an interview with the film's screenwriter, uh, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Allen Fiskin, who also wrote the Great Cutter's Way. Fiskin, and I don't want to I don't want to give up everything from the book, but um, but Fiskin was very very fun to talk to, and he really told me about some really fun stuff about what it was like to get hired by Tony and Tony's the way that all went down but yeah this was a project that was going to happen that the studio wanted to get made it had been in development it had gone through numerous people and tony had been a fan of the novella wanted to change gears and wanted to try a new project and do something different. And, you know, took the, took the big clout that he had at the time to make a movie that he probably knew wouldn't have gotten made under his, you know, direction in any other way. And the studio at first, from what I've been told and from what I've gleaned, the studio was very, 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 very reluctant about the theatrical cut. They were horrified by the violence, by the nihilism, by the sense of, as you said there was no way there was never any attempt to make kevin costner a, <laughs> i mean like yeah he he is the perfectly flawed anti-hero noir character that you've seen in multiple films throughout the years and then it has like this like modern tony scott gloss but yet it's also dusty in like mexico and he still has all mm-hmm. the curtains and the wind machines on Kevin Costner is a man who loves his freedom. I'm going on a vacation, man. I'm not
0: going to work for anybody, all right? (laughs) It's good to see you. Anthony Quinn is a man who loves his power. This is Mireya, my my
2: wife. This is Jay, my friend. She told me a lot about you. She was the last thing in the world he wanted.
0: Do
3: you think my wife is beautiful? Hi. Hello.
0: What do you want me to say? Of course.
3: Until she became the only thing in the world he wanted. Do you feel the way I feel? In a film by Tony Scott. Where is she? Revenge.
1: Well, yeah, so let me ask this question. So this is one of the problems I had early on with the movie. In the theatrical cut, is there more done to establish Costner and and, and Tibby's relationship? Because that that was something that I, I was just kind of lost in a way. Like I'm like clearly they're friends because they're in a scene smiling at each other, but I have no idea why.
2: A majority of what he removed, for whatever reason, for whatever reason he removed it. A majority of what was removed was the relationship between Cosby. He 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 changed the thrust of the film. It's, they're two different movies. One the theatrical cut is a is a story about male friendship, and how it takes a very, very, very terrible turn.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's all about a guy in total lust, but also battling the fact that he's going to fuck over his friend.
0: The director's
2: really? cut plays like, you know, and, I don't, and I'm and i certainly, and I'm a fan of the director's cut, I think it's different, and I think it's unique, and I don't think you ever get it, you don't get often get a chance to see that sort of tinkering to a film, short of Michael Mann, you know, tinkering with everything, but it's way more of a of a sexual piece in the director's cut. The mm-hmm. relationship the, the the charge that they have in the theatrical is still there. Trust me, it's plenty there. She, you know, the 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 stuff. That, and, you know it's great. I don't know if you guys read. Um, I gather the second, you know, wasn't there, but I mm-hmm. gather the sex scenes between the two of them were not rehearsed or blocked.
1: Jeez. Hmm.
2: So Tony Scott said just action and the two of them went at it wow so
0: they like maul each other i mean it's 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 crazy i mean there's moments where i'm like okay yeah i don't know
2: who's right you watch a film like that right now and you watch the two of them get it on like that who right now in hollywood would get it on like that like nobody i
0: mean i can't yeah i can't think of anything i mean it's yeah
2: movies like revenge anymore no, you, you you just there's you you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't get a movie like Revenge made right now unless you did it independently. You wouldn't get yeah, it. would be that, much
0: smaller. You much wouldn't have a, yeah. You wouldn't have an F16 in it. Because I can tell you that much for
3: <laughs>
2: you wouldn't have you wouldn't have two movie stars going at it the way that they did. And you'd be it would be very tough to pull off the violence, especially towards women in this film on a studio level. Oh, God, yeah. And
3: that's
2: the thing. Revenge is very connected to The Counselor between the two brothers. They're very similar movies. Interesting. I can see that. For as violent as Tony Scott would get and look no further than True uh, True Romance and, of course, him changing the ending of True Romance instead of killing them, you know, he let them live. Mm -hmm. He loved his characters too much to kill them. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Like, he, he was a... Warm person, he loved his characters. So when you see a film like Revenge, where the characters aren't likable, and you know, like like the Fan is one of the other movies that he did, where even Wesley Snipes is not really like all that likable. He's kind of a douche, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Feel, because he's being he's being stalked by De Niro, and De Niro's a you know freaking nutball. But Tony's movies always had a really beating heart at the center. You know, and I and I look at True Romance and I say to myself, you know, when he read that script and they died at the end, you know, did he know right off the bat that he was going to change it? You know, like, did he want them to live? Yeah, he wanted to. Tony wanted to have his cake and eat it too a lot. He liked the idea of the heroes winning, but also putting them through a lot of shit. No one wins in revenge. I was going to say
0: (laughs) that doesn't quite jibe with this one. Yeah, it's it's, no no one. It's a bleak ass ending.
2: It's, It's an anomaly for him.
0: I wanted to say, I mean, without kind of walking through the plot exactly, Craig, like, what what stands out to you, I think, from the the first half of this movie? Yeah, it's,
1: it's funny, you know, honestly, so much of it for me was just I was enjoying watching something that looked like a Tony Scott movie.
0: Well, let's talk about that look then a little bit. In some ways, stylistically, I, I do think it is definitely different from the latter half of the stuff that he's done. Yeah. There's not a lot of freneticness to this style. I mean, there's not the no. quick cuts. The shots linger. And there were things like there's one little scene that I, I or shot that I wrote down that I thought stood out in a in a weird way. It was just you remember Costner is kind of drive it's like the first drive down there to Quinn's house. Mm-hmm. He's in the Jeep, he's got the dog with him. He go he's already passed Madeline Stowe on the road. And he goes into like the little circle of their driveway. And there's a shot where it's like him talking to the dog. Like he says something about, oh yeah, it's a small place, but it's nice. You know, it's just jokingly about this large, large estate. Yeah. But like, it's a tracking shot. Like it it looked like as if it were shot from another car. You're following the Jeep and it's, it's going at a good clip. And there was like, in so many other movies, I feel like that would just be completely cut out or like even just trying to justify... To your producer no 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 i gotta have this shot we're gonna be moving like he's gotta be driving. you know sure. all these like little pieces that have to go i'm like but it's a cool little moment or you would just be a static shot you just put the camera in the back of the
2: car and you're done right um and that's they what, were all and, go and ahead I was you, say, there are just all kinds of things like that you know what you're hitting on is exactly the reason why tony scott's movies have always appealed to me they mm-hmm. are pure they are pure cinema he For was sure. al- he was always aware of the fact that he was putting his audience through a movie.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: M- movies, okay. Like, I love how we can get down and dirty, like, and make everything super realistic, and it's and it's you know the the you know the verisimilitude levels are off the charts, and like you're right there on the ground, and, and you know everything's super real, and you know it's Christopher Nolanized, and right, we're like we're in the middle of it, but. Sometimes I want that level of artifice to be in my entertainment and mm-hmm. that is what I loved about what I love about Tony's films every time I watch them is that a film like Revenge exists in a movie world everything about it like mm-hmm. the smokiness the yeah. the 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 humidity of it the uh, um, <laughs> all those the, candles, yeah <laughs> yeah, candles. the way that people look at each other, um, he had a way of, in my opinion, communicating a lot and, and he you know, people would rip on his movies. you go back, you read the reviews, everybody used to pick on him. It was a bad script. No, it wasn't a bad script. you just weren't paying attention. Tony Scott consistently worked with very quality scripts. There's a couple of movies, fine, you know, Beverly Hills Cop 2, not the greatest script, whatever. But mm-hmm. he wasn't someone who wasn't uninterested in what was going on, but at the same time, he was able to communicate a lot with very little. So when you look at passages, like you just said, Sean, where a camera is moving in a way that, you know, you had to justify it to somebody, it's because it's all for that that experience, that full-blown Tony Scott experience, you know. There's a very famous. Uh, did you guys see Spy yeah. Game? Yes. Um, you know the scene in Spy Game where they're on top of the roof when Brad Pitt and Robert Redford are having the conversation. They're in Beirut, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but there's a sequence where there's coverage from a helicopter. It's two mm-hmm. people standing on top of a building having a conversation, and yet most of the scene is shot from a helicopter. <laughs> right. Right. So on the day. Redford was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you know, why are we doing this? Like, why is there a helicopter doing the coverage? Because <laughs> it couldn't and get a jet. Yeah, <laughs> he, was not, he was not impressed and, like, didn't get it, right? And this is what I was told. And Tony was basically like, just shut up. You're my actor. You're not directing this movie. Um, you know, yes. get back over there. Do it. And then when Redford saw the final cut and saw what Tony Scott was doing with those shots, then he was like, oh, well, that's why he did it with a helicopter. It's because there was something... Everybody's got to motivate your camera, right? Everybody always says you don't ever have any unmotivated camera moves, right? Nah. yeah. Nah. Tony Scott loved unmotivated camera moves because that's what movie making is sometimes. It's, 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 it's having fun with your style. You know, a movie like Revenge, it doesn't look anything like Deja Vu, Domino, Man on Fire, Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and Unstoppable, you know, the latter portion of his career. Mm-hmm. And and when you look. But it's still
0: at- got a fingerprint, though, you know? Yeah. It's
2: like, that's what really stood out to me. It was
0: just mm-hmm. like, God, oh, like this is it's definitely like stylized. Yeah.
2: It has that wonderful shot on 35 millimeter film stock by Jeffrey Kimball saturated color look. And there is not a lot of movies. There's not a, you know, I think Kimball, one of the most underrated cinematographers that there ever has been. You look at that guy's yeah. credits, it's ridiculous. And the way that they pioneered that slick and gritty, you know, slick, slick road, but still, you know, hot and cold whenever it needs to be look. Yeah. I think this has been one of the most important stylistic trends you know, in movies in my lifetime.
0: Well, I, I really loved how they I mean, just specifically about cinematography like the depth of field was really interesting in this movie. I mean, like you remember the scene where Costner has been invited over to Quinn's house for dinner and it's like a din- dinner party. He's not getting along with the guests because Costner, once again, is kind of a dick. and And so he like insults Uh, one of the guests who I think is somehow connected to the mob but Quinn goes into the other room Costner's left with the women so in the other room like that that scene is so great like you know Quinn is basically drilling these guys that showed up and like you know it's gonna like end in violence at any moment Quinn is cool as a cucumber everybody else is like sweating but you get those great shots I don't know if you remember like some of those close-ups on those dudes in the background very kind of slightly blurred out is, like, some political speech being given on a TV. And, like, you don't even really hear it. You don't even really register it, but it's there. And, like, it adds... There was something about it. It was, like, it just adds to the, like, sense of of dread in that scene, mm-hmm. to the sense mm-hmm. of importance of these guys. And, like, these, you know, these are very serious men and, and doing some very serious things here. Of course, it ends with people getting shot. But um, I noticed that a few times in this movie. Like, yeah, like, what's going on in the background was really well thought out, you know, mm-hmm. and it looks like it just looks cool. Like it looks rich, I guess is the word I'm looking yeah. for, which I, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you are seeing 35 millimeter at work there versus, versus digital. I think sure. you can see it in those shots.
1: Well, and I wonder too, how much it has to do with like, I, I was, a. Uh, just introduced just just because of some stuff you sent me about Tony. I was introduced to the whole concept of nine camera Tony, which I'd never heard before, but makes complete sense. and and you know that's that's something I've always thought about is you know, looking at his movies, <clears throat> like how exactly does he get a movie to feel that way when other movies, you know, e- you know even action movies, movies that would be sort of the sort of thing he might do that come off just looking like, Sitcoms, and it feels like there's nothing between you and the movie, and, and you you kind of never get so involved with it. It always makes me wonder, like how how much um, you know if he's rolling a bunch of cameras on any of these scenes. To be an actor and sort of not really know where to play to, you know, that's one thing. To, just just trying to figure out, you know, if if you have one camera, you know, you know kind of exactly where you kind of need to play to. When you have all these other cameras, does it does it just does it just make you feel more natural or force you to be more natural, really ignoring the camera and not even worrying about what might happen? And and he's going to have something to cut with. That's really fascinating to me. That because uh, I'm assuming when they call him Nine Camera Tony, we're not talking about for car chases. He would be setting up tons of cameras for dialogue scenes.
2: Yes, I mean, I, you know, obviously wasn't there on every single movie to know what was going on at all times. But yes, he was very, very, very famous for using multiple cameras for a variety of different scenes. And, you know, like you said, it would probably create an atmosphere of a certain level of unpredictability. But also, I would have to imagine a certain level of confidence for the performers because they know that whatever they're doing, it's going to get captured in some way. And it's going to be mm-hmm. done in a different way, but yeah, no, I mean that's that was his his whole mo was to get as many cameras out there and put them in as many different places as possible and put together sort of a mosaic quality to his to his work. You know, I've always found yeah. that his films have a cubist like sort of like a cubist element to them. They're all these little pieces that might look sort of expressionistic if you saw them pulled away, but then when you mm-hmm. put them all together, it creates this unique you know, piece of art.
1: Sure, yeah, I could imagine the dailies just looking like nonsense.
2: <laughs> like, like like why are we yeah. looking at that guy's elbow through this whole scene, you know?
1: But then yeah, like you you just need that one little bit of movement that you cut into something and then uh, it all makes
2: sense. Like I could only imagine like you just said, I could only imagine to have seen the dailies on Domino. Yeah. Like yeah. like I just yeah. I I don't even know. Like I don't, I don't even know how that particular film could ever have been put together. So his mind worked in a very different way, and he saw things in a really accelerated fashion and as he got older, he got faster and that's the other thing too is that mm-hmm. you know his late career surge with that particular sort of hyped up style you know that was a guy in his late sixties you know putting that out there so he's a unique filmmaker there'll be never there'll never be anybody like him
0: well, I wanted to ask about this. That violent scene, basically the key moment of violence in this movie, when Quinn and his guys find Madeline Stowe and Kevin Costner at his cabin, and
2: studio was pissed.
0: I mean, I cannot. I'm I, like I Nothing was literally you. sitting there trying to think. I don't know of another pretty face I've seen beaten up that. I mean, like the only thing I could think of was like Jared Leto in Fight Club, you know, where they, it was like
2: or uh, uh, Monica Bellucci in Irreversible.
0: Right. And like, but she's not, you know, she's a movie star, but not to the degree that like Costner was at this point. You know, I don't think, like you're saying, yeah, I can't imagine, like, your studio is sitting there watching this, and there's no way in hell you're putting this in a theater and subjecting people through this. And then you got Madeline Stowe's just like, in the prime of her
2: beauty, and she's turned into hamburger. Yeah, she's just oh, dropped it gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous and gorgeous in the film. I mean, she's lit like a goddess in that movie. I mean, like if you were an actress and you could have that as an artifact for yourself. It's pretty Yeah, I would. <laughs> pretty. pretty <laughs> I know. Cool.
1: Well, and and you know, with all of that, I mean, yeah, it's it's a super violent scene, but what about the dog?
0: Oh god, yeah.
1: Like that was that was startling to me, and that's I mean that's always been a thing in movies, at least you know in America. Like no one, you don't shoot the dog.
0: They shoot the dog, yeah.
1: And that's like, (laughs) that's the most violent I've seen a dog treated. I think in any major
2: movie. And if you do see a dog get killed, you don't see it get blown across the wall, across the the room. So. Yeah, no, totally. Let's is that the most violent scene that
0: that Tony Scott has done? I mean, the beatdown, violent feeling. I mean, I know obviously, like, there's probably other stuff where more people die, <laughs> the, but as far as like the intensity of it,
2: the beatdown of Patricia Arquette in True Romance by James yeah. Gandolfini yeah. is still very, very, very intense to watch. That's just, that's uncomfortable at times. I haven't seen
0: that in a long time. I need to revisit Uh-oh. it. But he that, kicks the adds... shit out.
2: Remember, he throws her through the gl- the glass um, shower and. Yep. It's bad. It's it's a very, very violent. The, the stuff in Revenge and the stuff in True Romance would be the most violent that he ever got as a filmmaker. He wasn't, and that was the other thing too about Tony. He wasn't an unnecessarily violent, gratuitously violent filmmaker. He wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there was motivation for nearly everything in his movies. There was never wanton stupidity, violence just for the sake of it.
0: No, I mean, it's believable in this for sure. I mean, I would rather see it that way than in something like, uh, I don't know why this is popping to mind and, you know, I'm not trying to pick on this movie, but like Lone Survivor. I remember, like, there's a scene in Lone Survivor where these soldiers are falling down the side of a cliff. Oh, God, yeah. And it's brutal to watch, but I'm also thinking, like, how can they survive? Like, this is supposed to be based on true story. Like, how are they surviving the intensity of this and the sound of it and everything? The sound, whereas yeah, but like this, it feels real, and there are consequences. Mm -hmm. And Costner is not just back on his feet again the next day. You know, it like takes a while. A while. And, uh, like for that, I really like, that's the kind of thing where I think it's, it's impactful and it, it, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you are going to root for this guy who's done a terrible thing by cheating on his friend's, you know, wife and, and destroying that relationship, you almost got to have him get knocked down to that level for you
2: to, to want him go get that girl and save her. Absolutely. You know, absolutely, because that's the thing. Like, like you said, he's not set up as your classical hero at the front end of the film. I mean, he is in this. He is to an archetypal, you know, point of view. But even then, there's limitations to how heroic he is and what kind of a person he is. And then when he makes the decision that he does, you know, you're just basically kind of feeling like, all right, well, dude, you're going to get your f***ing ass kicked. Like, you know, like <laughs> you're going to get which you deserve. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's one of those things. It's the short, the the novella is nasty. They basically filmed the novella. Harrison, from what I've read and what I was told by Fiskin, very, very happy with the film, the theatrical cut. You know, he was very pleased with it. He was happy about how it turned out. But it was communicated to me by multiple people that the studio at the time was very reticent to release the movie as is. And they more or less had to be. Because they weren't given any, you know, they weren't really given anything else that they could have, you know, (laughs) like it was kind of, you know, Tony Scott used his clout at the time as arguably the hottest director in Hollywood to make a very downbeat, depressing movie that he probably knew that he'd never get a chance to make any other way.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to think about, like, what if actually this had come out after True Romance, if he would have been given a bigger green light or you know, maybe some more leeway with... The differences between the theatrical and the director's cut may not be as extreme, perhaps, um, if it had come on the heels of that. But, uh, hey, Craig, I did want to ask you, actually, like, in regards to that that scene, were you rooting for Costner after that point? Were you rooting for him to get his girl back? His girl, in air quotes?
1: Well, that's the thing, you know, I mean, that's... Not really. Yeah. But By the time he sets out on... You know his his path for revenge. I'm still I'm still very cognizant of the fact that he is. I mean, he's he's pretty much brought all of this on himself. Mm-hmm. He's he's done a horrible thing to his friend. And and that was a, a question that I had just now as I'm thinking about it because I don't remember it specifically. Was was his intention from that point on mainly to get revenge or to find and save the the girl?
0: Both. Yeah, I think it's both.
1: Cuz well, I guess that's the thing. T- to me it seemed like it seemed to me like his main point was to get revenge. He definitely <laughs> wanted to save the girl, but he wanted revenge. So like he's so focused on this guy and this girl is just she's just like in the meat grinder between these two guys now. Yeah. You know? W- which is kind of crazy. And, and and I feel like that that is kind of how it plays out as it as it goes along. It's just like these two guys are like, "Oh, like we've come to an understanding or something, and then and, and she dies. Well, I was to
0: say, like she's like that's not fair. Yeah, in some ways, she's like the tragic casualty of their egos in a in in a in a weird way. The, these two guys, Coster yeah. and Quinn. But I
1: can't say I was I was pulling for him. I will say that when Miguel Ferrar uh, showed up, I was automatically pulling for him. Yeah, I just think he's great.
0: Yeah, and what a great entrance for uh, Leguizamo as well. Like that's such yeah. a cool. <laughs> he has his little hat down and he he doesn't look up as the door opens and then he does And did he even say, I guess he did have a line or two in there, but he's he's sort of like strong, silent little sneaky son of a bitch I think is what they called him, really liked his performance but let's let's talk about that ending then because, I mean that's what this is all building to, you know, Costner's going after this girl and getting information and they're plotting the best way to go and, and get her out of this whorehouse and ultimately when he does it's It's too late. Like, she's a heroin addict, and she dies in his arms. A, I'm curious, Nick, if you know, is that the ending of the novella?
2: I will not lie. I do not know if it is the ending to the novella. I would have to assume that it is because of Harrison's enthusiasm for the um, adaptation. Because my guess is that if they had changed the ending, he probably would have flipped out.
0: And so what do you make of that? Is Is there a bigger meaning at play of this? Is it just, is it a
2: cautionary tale? Is that the kind of
0: like Shakespearean sort of thing?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I see it it as the pointless loss. You know, I mean, this is a guy that he made his decision, it didn't turn out, and now he's going to have to deal with those ramifications for the rest of his life and he's not going to have what he thought that he wanted or wanted at the moment. So yeah, I think that it's about a guy who is forced to live with pain, live with uh, hurt for the rest of his life.
0: Is it because he's this like sort of glory flyboy guy who probably well he had a divorce right? I think he had an ex-wife.
2: I, I honestly think it's because he he's got a dick.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was saying. I mean, like, what? Why? What is he just not experienced this kind of uh, pain obviously in his life before that he's driven to this point? But um, I think why he has. I mean, the movie, he's got a dick. Yeah, good yeah. enough. <laughs>
2: lust drives this movie. Carnal lust, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if you're going to buy into this idea that this guy is going to see this woman, and then he is going to completely mentally shut out everything for this woman, he's going to know that what he's doing is likely going to get him into trouble, but he's going to do it anyways because he is consumed with lust for this woman. I think it's a movie, at the end of the day, about being careful about lust and be and and knowing when you should back down and maybe when you shouldn't
1: well and it well it's interesting too though that you know even on anthony quinn's side i I don't know there doesn't seem to be any deeper of a love on his side either outside of she's just absolutely gorgeous you know yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you can tell, I mean, the first time you, you, you see her, you can tell she is definitely trapped in this world where she is thought of as a trophy, and, and she continues to be thought of as a trophy throughout the entire thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think for him it's more of just the insult of it all.
2: Um, oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah he's, you know, right? Yeah, he's a man of code. He's a man of honor. Um, and by the way, isn't Anthony Quinn amazing in the film?
0: Oh, yeah. He's great. I do have a question because you're just talking about a man of honor and code. Do we? Do, did I miss exactly what it is that he does for a living? I don't think it matters. I mean, you get the hint, but uh, I assume
2: he's just a Mexican mobster. Yeah, okay, he—he's. Uh, I mean, I've always interpreted him as as essentially the head of a of a you know the head of an organization.
0: But I mean, I kind of love that too because it's also like I had that question, but it wasn't towards the very end of the movie mm-hmm. that I thought to ask it. Mm-hmm. But you don't know a lot about this guy. I don't even like. I'm trying to figure out why, how it is exactly that Kevin Costner and this guy ended up becoming tennis buddies, and I, like I don't remember, and like it doesn't matter. in Some ways, you know. It's a, there's a mythic quality to it in a way. Yeah, exactly. And here's 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 one question, and we can wrap this up shortly. And I, I like I, I say this as a total fan of both actors. Is Bradley Cooper the Kevin Costner of the 2010s? Hmm. You know, if he
1: is, I think he might actually be an improvement. Wow. I feel like Kevin Costner, I think he was well cast in a lot of stuff. I don't think of him as, as one of our finest actors. Gotcha. Like sometimes sometimes he hits some really flat notes and that could be a lot of people's fault. Whereas I feel like Bradley Cooper could could vamp his way through something pretty well. Yeah. That's my own take. I know it's controversial. Sorry, guys.
0: <laughs> no, I was just trying to obviously think of like who's the modern equivalent of uh, of Kevin Costner. I mean, he's he's been in a ton of different things and a uh, leading man, an Oscar winner, all kinds of stuff. But there was there was something in this movie. Like there was, I don't know, just a moment where I looked at him and thought Bradley Cooper for whatever reason. Like he popped in my mind. So.
1: I mean, you you could put him in this in this movie in in like the, the version of this movie that comes out like next year.
2: Yeah, I will. I'd like to. And do I'd that, be like, yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, to a certain degree, I could see what I could see what you're saying. Um, I always find it hard. These days, to find modern equivalents to some of guys in Costner's age group and then a a bit older. Sure. I've always been a big fan of Costner because I've just found him to be like a very, I just find him to be a very inviting actor. Mm -hmm. Two of my favorite performances from him, they couldn't be any different Um, JFK and Tin Cup. You know, Tin Cup for me is like one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made. And mm-hmm. it's one of the best sports mm-hmm. movies that I've seen. I, I think that movie is a complete gem. And I think that his performance in that movie is just wonderful. And, you know, that's a role that I could easily see Bradley Cooper doing. You know, that, that kind of a thing.
1: Sure. Yeah.
2: And then, yeah. Damn. And then Cooper could get dark and he could get pained and beat up and I would believe it. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely.
0: Boom. I did it. <laughs> 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 well let's wrap this movie up I mean I think it's it's a hands down recommendation for me aside from everything else that we talked about that I, I liked about it just a really interesting environment really interesting production design I loved James Gammon as this like Texan cowboy guy who's I'm not even sure how the hell he died or what happened. Just, you know, another one of these guys that ended up in Mexico with a story. And um, there's a mm-hmm. lot of that. You know, the same with, like, the uh, the girl. Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on the actress's name, but the, the woman that's American that's there as a musician. It's kind of like trying to flirt with Costner at the hotel, motel. There's just all these little bits, again, like Lozamo. Um, the, these little people that flesh out this world. That I think are easy to overlook and forget when you're just like you know five years from now when we're thinking about this movie we'll be thinking of you know uh, Kevin Costner uh, you know rubbing Madeline Stowe's crotch in a jeep going 90 miles an hour but um, <laughs> we shouldn't just reduce it to that you know I, I do think yeah, there's true. there's a lot of really good elements you know again this was my second time seeing it only. I do think I picked up on a lot more of that stuff. Just the world that he created. Strongly, strongly enjoyed it. I, I that was great.
2: Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, you took the words right By the way, Sally Kirkland is the actress that you were talking about. That's it,
0: yes. Mm-hmm.
2: It's a very unique item in the filmography of Tony Scott. It's, right. it's one of his, I, I mean, it really is his only neo-noir, if you want to call it. Certainly traffics in, in some of that, you know, atmosphere and milieu. And I, I think that it's, a, it's one of those movies that exists sort of as a bridge between um, certain aesthetic periods in his career. Easily one of the darkest uh, <coughs> narratives that he had to play with. And I would highly recommend, if you did enjoy the director's cut, I would recommend you know, the next time that you do an Amazon purchase, I think the DVD is like six dollars. It's worth. I'll find it used. Yeah, it's worth picking up the theatrical cut because it is a very different movie, and it's worth uh, to compare the two. So
0: awesome, Craig! Final yeah. thoughts on Revenge? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I agree. I and and I uh, with everything you guys have said, and um, I think it would be pretty instructive, yeah, to to watch the theatrical cut. Compared to this one, that's uh, I, I'm yeah, I'm definitely gonna aim to do that myself because, uh, yeah, I gotta know, I gotta know uh, the full story of this thing.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with you, and I'm gonna put up a link that Nick also shared with with us regarding some of the best lines from Tony Scott's commentary on the blu-ray I think of the director's <laughs> yeah. cut co- and there's some amazing stuff in there it sounds like he spent half the time just talking about uh, Sally Kirkland's breast which yes. is <laughs> a fantastic thing that uh, I definitely want to hear as well and uh, yeah Nick will put some of your your work up as well some of the variety of stuff and we can't wait to read the book you'll have to come back on and talk to us when you when you get finished with it and we'll just do a, a Tony Scott marathon or something but thanks again for Coming back on, man.
2: Yeah, thank you, Nick. Yeah, listen, it was an honor, a pleasure. I love listening to your show. You guys are, you guys are, are a lot of fun. Um, so again, I, it's just, it's really cool. So thanks a lot.
0: Awesome, awesome. And check out podcasting them softly. Lots of great episodes and interviews in the back catalog of that gym. And uh, I don't know, Craig. What do you think you'll dream about tonight?
1: Uh, bloody revenge, Sean. Against who I don't know.
0: Doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> as do. long as it's not me, I will appreciate Fair it. Enough. And uh, yeah, until next time, we'll talk to you soon. We'll be back next week with a mini. Episode.
3: Bye. That was good stuff, guys. <laughs>